0: Welcome to Pursuing Justice. I am Harriet Hendel. Today, we are exploring the wrongful conviction case of Jen Reach, whom we met on our last two podcasts. But our guest now is a private investigator who was a key player in her case. He is Martin Yant, founder of Ace Investigations, located in Ohio. He had an award-winning career in journalism. His book, Presumed Guilty, When Innocent People Are Wrongly Convicted, came out in 1991, an outgrowth of his passion for miscarriages of justice. The book was listed by the Washington Post in 2005 as one of the most important books on this topic ever published. He has helped to free 30 wrongfully convicted people. Welcome, Marty, to the show.
1: Thanks, Harriet. It's good to be here.
0: Well, um, it's my pleasure. Before you started Ace Investigations, you were a journalist. Can you share a little bit about that aspect of your career with our listeners?
1: Sure. I started my journalism career after graduating from Georgetown in 1971 and i started at the pittsburgh press then i had a job office offer from the chicago sun times and daily news so i went to chicago and this was sort of the golden era of chicago newspapers there were four daily newspapers lots of great journalists and investigative journalists so i learned quite a bit there and was uh, inspired by some of the things that I saw investigative reporters in particular do. So uh, when I had an opportunity to return to Ohio, my home state, to become editor of the Mansfield News Journal, I jumped at the chance. And um, so uh, in January 1978, I became editor of the paper in Mansfield, which is a medium sized city of approximately 50,000 people. And I felt that it was a dream come true. And uh, it quickly turned into a nightmare, nightmare prompted by the wicked blizzard of 1978 in late January, which of course uh, paralyzed much of the Midwest and set many records for uh, the impact that it had on communities and uh, weather records. And one of the things that came out as my newspaper was reporting that I uh, was a call I received late at night when I was waiting for one reporter to finish up his story. And the caller told me that, uh, what we had reported earlier that day that a truck driver had been buried in a huge snowdrift outside of Mansfield for several days, and he told me that that was unnecessary because he knew that he was there. He heard on the CB that the man was there asking for help. So this man, and he said others, called the sheriff's department, which had jurisdiction, and they ignored the calls so i wrote a story about that and the next day i received a very threatening phone call from the sheriff i'd already been told that he was a, a bully and many people in town feared him so i got a dressing down myself and that prompted me to believe some of the things i was hearing so i launched an investigation into the sheriff and that led eventually to the conviction of the sheriff and several deputies on corruption and brutality charges. One of the things I uncovered was a wrongful conviction. I was told by numerous people that the sheriff. Had heard that a a businessman was thinking of running against him for sheriff. And at this time, you didn't have to have law enforcement background to become a sheriff in Ohio. You do now. Uh, So the sheriff told some deputies, he said, well, I'll take care of that guy. And he organized an investigation that framed um, this businessman who was convicted and therefore couldn't run for sheriff. So that was a minor thing in the whole scheme of what the sheriff was up to. uh, Horrible brutality, uh, torture. Uh, possible murder, drug dealing, uh, theft in office. Uh, it became a nationally known case, and that prompted also my the beginnings of my suspicion that law enforcement wasn't always what we're told it is, and. Uh, unfortunately, there was there were a lot of repercussions. I had a burn a building burned down when I started my own newspaper after being forced out by the main newspaper, which it turned out was very much involved in a lot of the town's corruption. And uh, I was finally forced to close the newspaper I started, even though it had developed a large circulation very quickly. Uh, but a building was burned down, and then, all kinds of other things started happening. I had a rock thrown through my window at home, and it got pretty ugly. And the advertisers started deserting the paper, so I was forced to close it. And I, for one year, went and to the Miami Herald. I liked the Herald, which was uh, had a number of great investigative reporters there, uh, but. So I returned to Ohio to the Columbus Dispatch. And in 1980, early 1983, I started writing a column for the dispatch. And one of the topics I came back to occasionally was wrongful convictions. And fortunately, at that time, an Ohio State University study had just been published about wrongful convictions, which hardly anyone believed actually happened, Uh, and they found that in their study, but they concluded that even with a conservative estimate of one half of 1% of people being convicted wrongly of serious crimes in the United States, um, that uh, that would work out to 10,000 people a year being sent to prison for crimes they didn't commit serious crimes and so that spurred me further and i continued to write about it every once in a while i also wrote some about corrupt sheriffs and eventually exposed the corrupt sheriff here in columbus who lost re-election um and um so Then in the late 80s, I had a little old lady show up at the dispatch lobby and the guard called me and said, there's this woman here who would like to see you. So I came down to see her and she handed me a video and she said, this is uh, a movie about my son in Texas who was convicted and sent to death row. And this, this movie proves that my son is innocent. And that movie was The Thin Blue Line, which to me really helped crystallize the growing concern about wrongful convictions in this country. And it was nominated for an Oscar uh, that following year, Uh, became kind of an international sensation. It was beautifully done by Errol Merce, who later won an Oscar for another documentary. And at that point, Having written about some other wrongful convictions, I said, You know, there's a book here. And so I started researching. I found that no one had done an overview of the wrongful conviction problems since a book that was published in 1961. There had been individual books about controversial wrongful convictions, uh, but those were few and far between. But nobody really took a look at the overall problem. So I decided. Uh, to write the book, "Presumed Guilty, When Innocent People Are Wrongly Convicted. And publication of that book really changed my life. Mm. I uh, Eventually, I had so many people begging me to look into their cases that I left the Columbus Dispatch and eventually became a PI and started investigating cases around the country.
0: Fantastic story. I, I, you answered the question I was going to ask you about how you came to write the book. Um is, is the book still uh, would you say in use or read? are are you aware, even though it was published uh, you know so long ago? are people still reading it?
1: Yeah, it was still in print until just a few years ago. It's still available on Amazon as a Kindle book. Oh, good. Um, I still get inquiries every week from somebody looking for a copy of it. And uh, they're they're out there as used books. Some claim that they're new, but they want to charge like eight hundred dollars for them <laughs> or something. So um, uh, it it uh, but it, it helped, and it was being taught in law schools and sociology classes through the nineties and two thousands, and then time finally caught up with it. You know the uh, cases I focus were ancient history to right. most people. Sure. Yeah. I once contacted a professor who wrote about her her uh, course on wrongful convictions in which she stated uh, that the wrongful conviction movement uh, first came to light in 1992 with the creation of the Innocence Project. Then I contacted her and said, that's not exactly true. My book was published a year before the Innocence Project was founded. But more important, Jim McCloskey at Centurion Ministries had been doing this kind of work since 1983. And as I point out in my book, there have been many efforts over the decades by people uh, investigating uh, wrongful convictions some of which had the stories had actually won of surprises. But and Earl Stanley Gardner started a TV show at one point um, called The Court of Last Resort, which was a TV show in which he gathered a group of experts and they reinvestigated cases where the person claimed that they were innocent. So this subject was not new, but certainly the advent of the Innocence Project and the growth of DNA testing changed everything. But I was kind of there at the creation yes, of sir. the current uh, thing. But when I talked to people about some wrongful convictions, even Thin Blue Line, and I became good friends with uh, uh, Randall uh, Adams, who was the wrongly convicted man. And, uh, and, you know, he was quite the celebrity in 1989 when he was released. Uh, even was flown to Italy within a matter of days to appear on uh, Italian television, and but now hardly anybody knows about Randall Adams and the horrible miscarriage of justice in his case, um, let alone some of the older, more celebrated cases. So, um, but you know, you I try to remind people that this just didn't start a couple right. weeks ago. <laughs> Because a lot of the young students think, they think this is all new.
0: Oh, brand new, yeah. Well, Jim McCloskey's book, he finally wrote a book, and he was on the show uh, quite a number of months ago. I I encourage people who may be new to uh, my podcast to go back and listen to the interview with Jim and his book. Um, and next month, interestingly enough, I will feature Centurion Ministries for the entire podcast. So we've got a little plug-in for them there.
1: Well, that's good because yeah. Centurion's kind of been overlooked um, yeah. uh, of late, even though it continues to exonerate people. And they normally take more difficult cases, cases in which there is no DNA evidence.
0: That's right, and, and they, they take cases from across the nation.
1: Not yeah, just- and- You know it's a lot harder work takes a lot more time right but they've freed a whole lot of people yeah
0: indeed i think it's 65 or some big number like that yeah well speaking of cases you were involved in jenny reach's case why her case and tell us how you went about helping jen to overturn her guilty verdict
1: Well, shortly after Presumed Guilty was published, i received all kinds of correspondence from people begging for help. Uh, But one of the cases that stood out to me was the case of Jen Reach, who was then known as Jenny Wilcox. And a family friend had watched this tragedy occur. And so she wrote to me, Never forget this. She actually, she was a, a church musician, organist, and she actually wrote a song called Jenny is Innocent, oh. <laughs> and I was impressed by her efforts, uh, not necessarily the song so much, but <laughs> her efforts if so somebody would go to that length. So I started communicating with her with uh, her. And then she introduced me to Jen's mother. And uh, somehow Jen had made contact or caught the attention of Dr. Richard Gardner, a very respected child psychiatrist at Columbia University, who was the first professional really to blow the whistle on child abuse hysteria. Mm. And he took a lot of heat for that. Uh, He eventually wrote a book that came out, I think, in 1993 uh, called True and False uh, Accusations of Child Abuse. It was a long uh, clinical type book, not easy reading, but highly documented. And he particularly focused on uh, child, uh, child abuse hysteria. And so, when he found out about Jen's case, uh, he started communicating with her, and then eventually with me. And at that point, I had started an investigative magazine, in part because I was trying to tell the story later of of Jen's case. And I was trying to get some national television coverage for it. I first wrote about it in my own magazine the Ohio Observer, but it needed a lot broader distribution than a little investigative magazine. And so I never forget that I pitched it to a producer at a new NBC news program, which is long gone now. And he looked at it, was very interested, but finally he said they can't do it. And he said, this is a great story, but it's a print story. It's not a TV story. And that's because there are a lot of unsavory aspects to it. And if you just talk about child abuse, everyone gets squeamish. Yeah. So I said, okay, well, I'll print it myself. So that's why I started the magazine, The Ohio Observer, in which I ended up exposing several other wrongful convictions. Um, but. Uh, So in 1984, I published the story and got some interest uh, and Dr. Gardner had uh, connected me with an attorney in Cleveland who had agreed to represent Chen uh, pro bono, but it took a long time and I gave him all the evidence I had developed uh, in 1993 and in 1984, the attorney still hadn't gotten around to filing anything. And Jen was bugging me. Please get him to do something to do something. And so I kept pushing him, too. Uh, and then after my story appeared, he finally did file uh, and got some other attorneys on board for help. And uh, so that was the starting start of my involvement with Jen's case. And it was frightening, not surprising, because I had watched the McMartin mm-hmm. child abuse hysteria case on, you know, unravel in California. It ended up with the nation's longest criminal trial that resulted in no convictions. <laughs> and it's because there was nothing there. Yeah. And I watched with uh, dismay as the press ate it all up. Uh, and including the LA Times, but network news, everybody was talking about the horrible things that these children at the Head Start uh, preschool had gone through, how they'd been flown to other states to be abused, uh, that they had witnessed uh, child sacrifices from the satanic cult, which the satanic satanic cult was another uh, thing that kind of joined with the, The uh, child abuse hysteria thing. So sometimes accusations of child abuse would also involve Satanism. And the LA Times, to his credit, in 1990, after the case had concluded, wrote a Pulitzer Prize winning series of articles that just ripped apart the media's coverage and contribution to the hysteria. Including that by the L.A. Times, so it was kind of courageous that they, that they, you know, they turned around and pointed the finger at themselves,
0: Hmm.
1: and so that impressed me. But so I, I already knew how this kind of went down, and then Doctor Gardner, in his book, writes extensively about how hysteria and how it starts and how it mushrooms and all the damage that's done and leading quite often to wrongful convictions of multiple people.
0: Have have you um, handled or been involved in cases similar to uh, Jen's case?
1: Yeah, another one that very much fits sort of the the same pattern Uh, after Jen was released in March 1996 after we got the convictions overturned for both her and her co-defendant Robert Aldridge. Uh, Jen told me that she had a friend at the Ohio Reformatory for Prison who had been through the same thing and that was Nancy Smith who was wrongly convicted in Lorain, Ohio Uh, and the case was very very similar. It started with rumors Uh, and people who didn't know what they were doing, and detectives who didn't know what they were doing. And they sought out publicity and got the whole town outraged about uh, this case in which Nancy was a Head Start bus driver. And supposedly, instead of driving her children to the school, would sometimes take them to the apartment of a man named Joseph Allen, whom she didn't even know. Uh, And they would take them down in the basement to sexually molest them. Joseph Allen's basement didn't, apartment didn't have a basement, but that didn't mean anything. And there was no proof they knew, even knew each other. And his name came up primarily because uh, he had a prior sex abuse conviction, but totally Uh, irrelevant to the current case and the hysteria for any involvement by Nancy. And it just came to a crescendo and they were both uh, convicted and sentenced pretty much to life, which is the same thing that happened to Jen and Robert Aldridge.
0: Well, we we are almost uh, out of time, but you have consented to coming back and talking to us uh, more about this whole issue. And maybe um, when you do come back, we can talk a little bit more about uh, Jen's case and, and exactly how you were involved in it and how you were able to successfully overturn the case. So, And I also want you to talk about the factors that contribute to cases like this, the, uh, mainly the hysteria. So I I so appreciate your time today, your expertise. It's fascinating to listen to you. And uh, I encourage my listeners to come back and hear the second part of your interview. So thank you for listening today, and please join us next time on Pursuing Justice.